93, Part 3, Book 2, The Three Children The summer of 1792 had been very rainy. The summer of 1793 was very hot. As a result of the Civil War, there were, so to speak, no more roads in Brittany. Yet people were able to travel there, thanks to the beauty of the summer. The best road is a stretch of dry ground. At the end of a cloudless July day, about an hour before sunset, a man on horseback, coming from the direction of Avranches, stopped in front of the little inn known as the Croix Branchard, which was just outside Pontorson, and whose sign bore this inscription, which could still be read a few years ago, Good Cider to Pour. It had been hot all day, but the wind was beginning to blow. The traveller was wrapped in a big cloak, which covered the rump of his horse. He wore a broad hat with a tricolored cockade, which was not without boldness in that region of hedges and musket-shots, where a cockade was a target. The cloak, tied at his neck, was spread to leave his arms free, and beneath it one could glimpse a tricolored sash with two pistols thrust into it. A saber hung down below the cloak. At the sound of the horse stopping, the door of the inn opened, and the innkeeper appeared with a lantern in his hand. It was the intermediate hour. It was light on the road and dark inside the inn. The innkeeper saw the cockade. Citizen, he said, are you going to stay here? No. Where are you going? To Dole. In that case, either go back to Avranches or stay in Pontorson. Why? "'because there's fighting at Dole.' "'Ah,' said the horseman. "'Then he added, "'Give my horse some oats.' "'The innkeeper brought the trough, "'emptied a bag of oats into it, "'and unbridled the horse, "'which began to snort and eat. "'The conversation continued. "'Citizen, is that a requisitioned horse?' "'No.' "'He's yours?' "'Yes. "'I bought and paid for him.' "'Where are you coming from?' "'Paris.' "'You haven't come directly, have you?' "'No.' "'I didn't think so. The roads are cut off, but the post is still running. "'As far as Alençon, I left it there. "'Ah, soon there won't be any more posts in France. There are no more horses. "'A horse worth three hundred francs costs six hundred, and exorbitant prices are charged for fodder. "'I used to be a postmaster, and now I'm an innkeeper.' Out of the thirteen hundred and thirteen postmasters there used to be, two hundred have resigned. Citizen, did you travel after the new rates went into effect? On the first of May, yes. Twenty sous a post in a carriage, twelve in a cabriolet, five in a van. Did you buy that horse at Alençon? Yes. Have you been riding all day? Since dawn. And yesterday? And day before yesterday. I see. You came by way of Donfranc and Mortain. And Avranche. Take my advice, citizen. Get some rest. You must be tired. Your horses. Horses have a right to be tired. Men don't. The innkeeper again fixed his gaze on the traveller, who had a grave, calm, and stern face framed by grey hair. The innkeeper glanced at the road, which was deserted as far as the eye could see and said, "'And you've been travelling alone?' "'I have an escort.' "'Where?' "'My sabre and my pistols.' 
the innkeeper brought a pail of water, and while the horse was drinking, examined the traveler, and said to himself, Even so, he looks like a priest. You say there's fighting at Dole? asked the rider. Yes, it should be beginning about now. Who's fighting? One ex-nobleman against another. What do you mean? I mean that an ex-nobleman who's for the Republic is fighting an ex-nobleman who's for the king. But there's no longer a king. There's the child, and the odd part of it is that the two ex-noblemen are relatives. The rider listened attentively. The innkeeper went on. One is young, the other is old. A grandnephew is fighting his granduncle. The uncle is a royalist, the nephew is a patriot. The uncle is in command of the whites, the nephew is in command of the blues. Oh, they won't give each other any quarter, you can be sure of that. It's a war to the death. To the death? Yes, citizen. Would you like to see the compliments they throw at each other? This is a poster which the old man has managed to have posted everywhere, on all the houses and all the trees. He even had it posted on my door. The innkeeper held his lantern near a square sheet of paper that had been fastened to one side of his double door, and since the poster was written in very large letters, the rider was able to read the following without getting off his horse. The Marquis de Lantenac has the honor of informing his grandnephew, the Vicomte de Gauvin, that if he is fortunate enough to capture him, he will promptly have him shot. And here's the answer, said the innkeeper. He turned around and lighted with his lantern another poster, placed beside the first one, on the other side of the door. The traveler read, Gauvin notifies Lantenac that if he takes him, he will have him shot. Yesterday, said the innkeeper, the first poster was put on my door, and this morning the second one was put there. The reply wasn't long in coming. Softly, and as though speaking to himself, the traveller uttered these words, which the innkeeper heard without understanding them very well. Yes, it's more than a war within the fatherland. It's a war within the family. It's necessary, and it's good. Great rejuvenations of peoples must be bought at that price. He put his hand to his hat, and with his eyes fixed on the second poster, saluted it. Here's how things are, citizen, said the innkeeper. In the cities and big towns, we're for the revolution. In the country, they're against it. In other words, the people in the towns are French, and those in the villages are Breton. It's a war of townsmen against peasants. They call us louts, we call them hayseeds. The noblemen and the priests are with them. Not all, interrupted the rider. Of course not, citizen, since we have here a vicomte against a marquis, he added to himself, and I feel sure I'm talking to a priest. And which of the two is winning? asked the traveller. The vicomte so far, but he's having trouble. The old man is tough. They both belong to the Gauvin family, noblemen from here. It's a family with two branches. There's the big branch, whose head is called the Marquis de Lantenac and the little branch, whose head is called the Vicomte Gauvin. The two branches are now fighting each other. That doesn't happen with trees, but it happens with men. The Marquis de Lantenac is all-powerful in Brittany. For the peasants, he's a prince. He had eight thousand men as soon as he landed. Three hundred parishes have revolted in one week. If he'd been able to get a foothold on the coast, the English would have landed by now. 
Fortunately, Gauvin, his own grandnephew, oddly enough, was there. He's a Republican commander, and he stopped his granduncle. And then, as good luck would have it, when Lantanac arrived, slaughtering prisoners right and left, he had two women shot, one of whom had three children who'd been adopted by a Paris battalion. That made it a terrible battalion. It's called the Red Bonnet Battalion. There aren't many of those Parisians left, but they're ferocious with their bayonets. They've been incorporated into Gauvin's force. Nothing can stand up against them. They want to avenge the woman and get the children back. No one knows what the old man has done with the children. That's what enrages the Paris grenadiers. If those children hadn't become involved, this war wouldn't be the way it is. The Vicomte is a good and brave young man, but the old man is a terrible marquis. The peasants call it the War of St. Michael against Beelzebub. As you may know, St. Michael is an angel of this region. He has his own mountain that rises up out of the bay. He's supposed to have felled the demon and buried him under another mountain near here called Tombelen. Yes, murmured the rider. Tumba Beleni, the tomb of Belenus, of Belus, of Bel, of Belial, of Beelzebub. I see you're well informed. And the innkeeper thought, he knows Latin, so he must really be a priest. Then he went on. Well, citizen, for the peasants it's that war which is beginning again. It goes without saying that, for them, St. Michael is the royalist general, and Beelzebub is the republican commander. But actually, if there's a devil, it's Lantanac, and if there's an angel, it's Gauvin. Aren't you going to take anything, citizen? I have my gourd and a piece of bread. But you haven't told me what's happening at Dole. Here it is, then. Gauvin is in command of the expeditionary force of the coast. Lantanac's goal was to stir up a general insurrection, to support Lower Brittany by Lower Normandy, to open the door to Pitt, and to help the great Vendean army with twenty thousand Englishmen and two hundred thousand peasants. Gauvin cut that plan short. He holds the coast, and he's pushing Lantanac into the interior and the English into the sea. Lantanac was here, and he dislodged him. He took Pont-au-Beau away from him. He drove him out of Avranches and Villedieu, and prevented him from reaching Granville. He's maneuvering to push him back into the Fougere forest, and surround him there. Everything was going well yesterday. Gauvin was here with his men. All at once there was an alert. The old man, who's clever, had made a sudden forward thrust, and it was learned that he was marching on Dole. If he takes Dole, and if he sets up a battery on Mount Dole, he has cannons. There will be one point on the coast where the English can land, and everything will be lost. There wasn't a moment to lose, so Gauvin, who's an intelligent man, didn't consult anyone but himself. He didn't ask for any orders, and he didn't wait. He sounded the call the saddle, had horses hitched to his artillery, gathered his men, and drew his saber. And so, while Lantanac is moving against Dole, Gauvin is moving against Lantanac. It's at Dole that these two Breton heads are going to knock together. It will be a fine collision. They're there now. How long does it take to get to Dole? For soldiers with supply wagons, three hours. But they're there already. The traveler listened and said, Yes, I think I hear cannon fire. The innkeeper listened. Yes, citizen, and musket fire, too. 
It sounds like ripping cloth. You ought to spend the night here. Nothing good can come of going there. I can't stop. I must go on. You're wrong. I don't know your business, but the risk is great, and unless it concerns what you hold dearest in the world, that's precisely what it concerns, replied the traveler. Something like your son. That's right. The innkeeper raised his head and thought, and yet this citizen gives me the impression of being a priest. Then, after a moment of reflection, after all, a priest can have children. Put the bridle back on my horse, said the traveler. How much do I owe you? And he paid him. The innkeeper placed the trough and the pail against the wall, then came back to the traveler. Since you're determined to leave, listen to my advice. It's clear that you're going to Saint Malo. Well, don't go by way of Dole. There are two roads, the one through Dole and the one that runs along the shore. The first is not much shorter than the second. The shore road goes by way of Saint-Georges-de-Brienne, Chereux, and Irel-le-Vivier. You leave Dole to the south and Cancale to the north. Citizen, at the end of the street you'll find a fork of two roads. The one that goes through Dole is on the left. The one that goes through Saint-Georges-de-Brienne is on the right. Listen to me carefully. If you go by way of Dole, you'll fall into a massacre. So turn right, not left. Thank you, said the traveler, and he spurred his horse. Darkness had now fallen. He plunged into the night. The innkeeper lost sight of him. When the traveler reached the end of the street and the fork of the two roads, he heard the innkeeper's voice calling to him from far away. Turn right! He turned left. Dole, a Spanish town of France in Brittany, as the Carcellaries called it, is not a town, it is a street. A big old Gothic street, bordered on both sides by houses with pillars. These houses are not built in straight lines, so they form bulges and bends in the street, which is very wide. The rest of the town is only a network of lanes, which run into that big diametrical street like brooks flowing into a river. The town, without gates or walls, open with Mount Dull towering above it, could not sustain a siege, but the street can sustain one. The promontories of houses that could still be seen there fifty years ago, and the two pillared galleries which line it, made it a stronghold capable of offering great resistance. The houses were so many fortresses, and they had to be taken one after another. The old market was in the middle of the street. The innkeeper of the Quabranchard had told the truth. Dole had been filled with a furious combat at the moment when he spoke. A nocturnal duel between the whites, who had arrived that morning, and the blues, who had come in the evening, had suddenly broke out in the town. The forces were unequal. There were six thousand whites and fifteen hundred blues. But there was an equality of fierce determination. Strange to say, it was the fifteen hundred who had attacked the six thousand. On one side, a mob. On the other, a phalanx. On one side, six thousand peasants with hearts of Jesus on their leather jackets, white ribbons on their round hats, Christian devices on their brassards, and rosaries on their sword belts. They had more pitchforks than sabers, their muskets had no bayonets, and they dragged cannons with ropes. 
They were badly equipped, badly disciplined, and badly armed, but they were frenzied. On the other side, fifteen hundred soldiers, wearing three-cornered hats with tricolored cockades, long-tailed coats with broad lapels and shoulder belts. They had curved swords with copper hilts and muskets with long bayonets. They were trained, drawn up in formation, docile and ferocious, knowing how to obey like men who would know how to command. They, too, were volunteers, but volunteers of the fatherland. They were in rags and without shoes. For the monarchy, knight-errant peasants. For the revolution, barefoot heroes. And each troop had its soul in its leader. The royalists had an old man, the republicans a young one. On one side, Lantanac. On the other, Gauvin. Beside its gigantic young figures, like Danton, Saint-Just, and Robespierre, the revolution had its ideal young figures, like Hoche and Marceau. Gauvin was one of these. Gauvin was thirty years old. He had the shoulders of a Hercules, the serious eyes of a prophet, and the laugh of a child. He did not smoke, he did not drink, he did not swear. He took a toilet case with him through the war. He took great care of his fingernails, his teeth, and his hair, which was brown and superb. And during the halts, he himself shook out his captain's coat, which was white with dust and had bullet holes in it. Although he always rushed headlong into combat, he had never been wounded. His gentle voice could give harsh commands when necessary. He set an example by sleeping on the ground, in the wind, rain, or snow, wrapped in his cloak, with his handsome head resting on a stone. He had a heroic and innocent soul. The saber in his hand transfigured him. He had that effeminate air which is formidable in battle. He was, furthermore, a thinker and a philosopher, a young sage. He was an Alcibiades for those who saw him, a Socrates for those who heard him. In that immense improvisation which was the French Revolution, this young man had immediately become a military leader. His expeditionary force, formed by him, was, like the Roman Legion, a kind of complete little army. It was composed of infantry and cavalry. It had scouts, engineers, sappers, and pontoniers, and just as the Roman Legion had catapults, it had artillery. Three cannons drawn by good horses made the troops strong, and left it maneuverable. Lantanac was also a military leader, and an even more formidable one. He was both bolder and more deliberate. True old heroes have more coolness than young ones, because they are far from dawn, and more daring because they are close to death. What have they to lose? So little. Hence Lantanac's audacious yet skillful maneuvers. On the whole, however, Gauvin nearly always gained the advantage in that bitter struggle between the old man and the young one. It was more the work of fortune than anything else. All kinds of good luck, even the most terrible, are part of youth. Victory is something of a strumpet. Lantanac was exasperated with Gauvin, first of all because Gauvin was beating him, and also because he was a relative of his. Whatever had given him the idea of becoming a Jacobin? That Gauvin, that young rascal. His heir, for the Marquis had no children. 
a grandnephew, almost a grandson. Ah, said that virtual grandfather, if I ever get my hands on him, I'll kill him like a dog. The Republic was right to be worried about that Marquis de Lantenac. He caused people to tremble almost as soon as he had landed. His name had run through the Vendean insurrection like a train of gunpowder, and he had immediately become the center of it. In a revolt of that nature, in which there is jealousy on all sides, and everyone has his own thicket or ravine, the arrival of a truly superior man rallies all the scattered leaders who have been truly equal among themselves. Nearly all the forest leaders had given him their allegiance and now obeyed him, from near or far. Only one man had left him, and that was the first man who had joined him, Gavard. Why? Because he had been another leader's right-hand man. Gavard had known all the secrets and adopted all the plans of the old system of civil war, which Lantenac had come to supplant and replace. One does not inherit from someone else's right-hand man. La Ruarie's shoes did not fit Lantenac. Gavard had gone off to rejoin Bonchamp. As a military man, Lantenac belonged to the school of Frederick II. He intended to combine the big war with the little one. He wanted neither a confused mass, like the big Catholic and royal army, a crowd destined to be crushed, nor a force scattered through the forests and thickets, good for harassing the enemy, but not for overcoming him. Guerrilla warfare concludes nothing, or concludes badly. One begins by attacking a republic, and ends by robbing a stagecoach. Lantenac did not view that Breton war as being all in the open fields, as La Rochechaclin had done, or all in the forest, as Jean Chouan had done. He wanted neither the Vendean war, nor the Chouan uprising. He wanted a real war. He intended to make use of the peasant, but to rely on the soldier. He wanted bands for strategy and regiments for tactics. He found those village armies, quickly assembled and dispersed, excellent for attack, ambush, and surprise. But he felt that they were too fluid. They were like water in his hand. He wanted to create a solid point in that floating, diffuse war. To the wild army of the forests, he wanted to add a regular troop, which would be the pivot around which the peasants would maneuver. It was a profound and terrible conception. If it had succeeded, Vendée would have been impregnable. But where could he find a regular troop? Where could he find soldiers, regiments, a ready-made army? In England. Hence Lantenac's fixed idea, to enable the English to land. Thus surrenders the conscience of parties. The white cockade hid the red coat from him. He had only one thought, to gain possession of one point of the coast and give it to Pitt. That was why, having seen Dole defenseless, he had leapt upon it, in order to have Mount Dole by means of Dole, and the coast by means of Mount Dole. The place was well chosen. From Mount Dole his cannons would sweep Lefrenois on one side and saint on the other, hold the Cancal fleet at a distance, and leave the whole beach clear for an invasion from Ras sur quenon to Saint-Meloire-des-Andes. To make this decisive attempt succeed, Lantenac had brought with him a little more than six thousand men, the most robust members of the bands he had at his disposal, and all his artillery, 
ten sixteen-pound culverins, an eight-pounder, and a four-pounder. He intended to set up a strong battery on Mount Dole, following the principle that a thousand shots fired from ten cannons do more work than fifteen hundred shots fired from five cannons. Success seemed certain. He had six thousand men. He had nothing to fear except Gauvin and his fifteen hundred men in the direction of Avranches, and L'Echelle in the direction of Dinan. L'Echelle, it was true, had twenty-five thousand men, but he was twenty leagues away. Lantenac was therefore reassured with regard to L'Echelle by great distance against great number, and with regard to Gauvin by small number against small distance. It should be added that L'Echelle was an imbecile and that he later allowed his twenty-five thousand men to be overwhelmed on the moors of Bataille, a failure for which he paid by committing suicide. And so Lantenac felt completely secure. His entrance into Dole was abrupt and stern. The Marquis de Lantenac had a harsh reputation. He was known to be without pity. No resistance was attempted. The terrified inhabitants barricaded themselves in their houses. The six thousand Vendeans installed themselves in the town with rustic confusion. It was almost a fairground, with quartermasters or assigned lodgings. The men camped at random, doing their cooking in the open, scattering into the churches, leaving their muskets for their rosaries. Lantenac quickly went with a few artillery officers to reconnoiter Mount Dole, leaving the command to Gouge le Bruant, whom he had made his second in command. This Gouge le Bruant has left a vague trace in history. He had two nicknames, Brise Bleu, Blue Breaker, because of his massacres of patriots, and Imanus, because there was something inexpressibly horrible about him. Imanus, derived from Imanus, is an old Lower Norman word which denotes superhuman ugliness that is almost divine in its horror. A demon, a satyr, an ogre. An old manuscript says, With my two eyes I saw the Imanus. Today, the old people of Le Bocage no longer know who Gouge Le Bruant was, or what Brise Bleu means, but they are vaguely familiar with Imanus. Imanus is mingled with the local superstitions. People still talk of him in Tremorel and Plumogat, two villages in which he left the mark of his sinister foot. In Vendée, the others were savages. Gouge le Bruant was a barbarian. He was a kind of Indian chief, tattooed with tables of the alphabet and fleur-de-lis. On his face was the hideous, almost supernatural glow of a soul that was not like any other human soul. He was infernally brave in combat and atrocious afterward. He had a heart full of tortuous processes. He was inclined to all kinds of devotion prone to all kinds of fury. Did he reason? Yes, but as snakes crawl, twistedly. He departed from heroism to reach murder. It was impossible to guess where his resolutions came to him. They were sometimes so monstrous as to be grandiose. He was capable of every unexpected horror. He had an epic ferocity. Hence his reformed nickname, Imanus. The Marquis de Lantenac had confidence in his cruelty. He was right to trust him in cruelty, for Imanus excelled in it. 
but in strategy and tactics he was less superior, and the Marquis may have been wrong to make him his second in command. In any case, he left Imanus behind him, with orders to replace him and look after everything. Gouge le Bruin, more of a warrior than a soldier, was better suited to massacring a clan than to keeping a town. He did set up outposts, however. After nightfall, when the Marquis de Lantenac had inspected the position of the battery he planned to establish, and was on his way back to Dole, he suddenly heard cannon shots. He looked. Red smoke was rising from the main street. There had been surprise, invasion, assault. There was fighting in the town. Although difficult to astonish, he was stupefied. He had not been expecting anything of the sort. Who could it be? It was obviously not Gauvin. No one would attack at odds of four to one. Was it Lachelle? What a forced march he would have had to make. Lachelle was improbable. Gauvin, impossible. Lantenac spurred his horse. On the way, he met inhabitants of the town who were fleeing. He questioned them. They were wild with fear. They shouted, The Blues! The Blues! When he arrived, the situation was bad. Here is what had happened. As we have seen, when the peasants arrived in Dole, they scattered through the town, each man doing as he pleased, as often happens when one obeys out of friendship, to use the Vendean's own expression. It is a kind of obedience which makes heroes, but not troopers. They had put their artillery, along with their baggage, under the roof of the old covered market and tired, drinking, eating, telling their beads, they had lain down pell-mell in the main street, which was encumbered rather than guarded. When darkness fell, most of them went to sleep with their heads on their sacks. Some of them had their wives beside them, for the peasant women often went with their men. In Vendée, pregnant women served as spies. It was a mild July evening. The constellations were glittering in the deep blue-black of the sky. The whole bivouac, which was more like the overnight stop of a caravan than the encampment of an army, began to sleep peacefully. Suddenly, in the twilight, those who had not yet closed their eyes saw three cannons at the entrance of the main street. It was Gauvin. He had taken the outpost by surprise. He was in the town, and his men held the top of the street. A peasant sat up, cried, "'Who goes there?' and fired his musket. A cannon-shot replied. Then there was a furious burst of musket-fire. The whole sleeping mob awoke with a start. It was a rude shock to go to sleep under the stars and wake up under enemy fire. The first moment was terrible. There is nothing so tragic as the milling of a thunderstruck crowd. They snatched up their weapons, shouted, ran, many of them fell. Some of them were so confused by the attack that they no longer knew what they were doing, and began shooting at each other. There were bewildered people who came out of houses, went back inside, came out again, and wandered frantically among the fighting. Families called out to one another. It was a baleful combat, mingled with women and children. Whistling bullets streaked through the darkness. Shots came from every dark corner. Everything was smoke and tumult. The tangle of supply wagons added to the confusion. The horses were rearing and kicking. The wounded were trampled. Screams were heard from the ground. 
Some were horrified, others stupefied. Soldiers and officers were looking for one another. A woman was sitting against a wall, suckling her newborn baby. Her husband, whose leg was broken, was sitting against the same wall. While his blood flowed, he calmly loaded his musket and fired at random, killing in the darkness in front of him. Men lying on their stomachs were shooting between the wheels of carts. Occasionally the shouting reached a crescendo. The heavy voices of the cannons covered everything. It was terrifying. It was like a felling of trees. They fell on top of one another. Gauvin's men, under cover, were shooting accurately and suffering few losses. However, the peasants' intrepid disorder finally went on the defensive. They retreated into the covered market, a vast, dark redoubt, a forest of stone pillars. There they regained their footing. Anything that resembled a forest gave them confidence. Imanus did his best to make up for Lantanac's absence. They had cannons, but to Gauvin's great surprise, they did not use them. This was due to the fact that the artillery officers had gone with the Marquis to reconnoiter Mount Dole, and the peasants did not know what to do with the cannons. But they poured bullets into the blues who were shooting cannons at them. They replied to the grape-shot with musket-balls. It was now they who were sheltered. They had piled up the carts, the tumbrils, the baggage, and all the casks in the old market, and had thus improvised a high barricade with openings through which they could shoot. Through these holes their shooting was murderous. This all took place quickly. Within a quarter of an hour the market had an impregnable front. It was a serious matter for Gauvin. That market, abruptly transformed into a citadel, was unexpected. The peasants were inside it, massed and solid. Gauvin had succeeded in surprising them, but had failed to rout them. He had dismounted from his horse. Standing in the glare of a torch that lighted his battery, holding his sword in one hand with his arms folded, he attentively watched the whole shadowy scene. The torchlight made his tall figure clearly visible to the men behind the barricade. He was a target, but he was not conscious of it. Volleys of bullets fired from the barricade struck all around him as he stood there, thoughtful. But against all those muskets there were cannons. Cannonballs always prevail in the end. He who has artillery has victory. Gauvin's well-manned battery assured his superiority. Suddenly a flash burst from the shadowy market. There was a sound like that of thunder, and a cannonball made a hole in the wall of a house above Gauvin's head. The barricade was replying to artillery with artillery. What was happening? There had been a new development. The artillery was no longer on one side only. A second cannonball followed the first one and struck the wall very near Gauvin. A third one knocked his hat off. These balls were of large caliber. It was a sixteen-pounder that was firing. "'They're aiming at you, sir!' cried the gunners, and they extinguished the torch. Gauvin, still thoughtful, picked up his hat. Someone had indeed been aiming at Gauvin. Lantanac. The Marquis had just arrived at the barricade from the opposite direction. Imanus had run up to him. "'My lord, we've been taken by surprise.' "'By whom?' "'I don't know.' "'Is the road to Dinan clear?' "'I think so.' "'The withdrawal must begin. 
It's begun. Many have already run away. We mustn't run away. We must withdraw. Why aren't you using the artillery? The men lost their heads, and besides, the officers weren't here. I'll go to the artillery now. My lord, I've sent as much of the baggage as I could toward Fougere, along with the women, and everything useless. What shall I do with the three little prisoners? Ah, the children. Yes. They're our hostages. Have them taken to the Torg. Having said this, the Marquis went to the barricade. The arrival of the leader put a new face on everything. The barricade was badly made for artillery. There was room for only two cannons. The Marquis had two sixteen-pounders put in position after embrasures had been made for them. As he was leaning over one of these cannons, observing the enemy artillery through the embrasure, he saw Gauvin. "'It's he!' cried the Marquis. He then took the swab and rammer himself, loaded the cannon, sighted it, and fired. Three times he aimed at Gauvin and missed. The third shot succeeded only in knocking his hat off. "'How awkward of me,' murmured Lantanac. "'A little lower, and I'd have hit his head.' Suddenly the torch went out, and he had only darkness in front of him. "'So be it,' he said. Then, turning to the peasant gunners, he cried out, "'Load with grape-shot!' As for Gauvin, he was no less in earnest. The situation was becoming serious. A new phase of the combat was developing. The barricade had begun firing cannons. Perhaps it was even about to shift from the defensive to the offensive. Deducting the men who had fled or been killed, there were at least five thousand combatants in front of him, and he now had only twelve hundred able-bodied men left. What would become of the Republicans if the enemy became aware of their small number? The roles would be reversed. They were now the attackers. They would then be the attacked. If the barricade made a sortie, everything might be lost. What was to be done? A frontal attack on the barricade was out of the question. An attempt to use brute force would be insane. Twelve hundred men could not drive out five thousand. To make a sudden assault was impossible. To wait would be fatal. He had to put an end to the situation. But how? Gauvin was a native of the region. He was familiar with the town, and he knew that behind the market, where the Vendeans were entrenched, was a labyrinth of narrow, winding streets. He turned to his second-in-command, who was the valiant Captain Gaechamp, later famous for having cleared out the Concise forest where Jean Chouan was born, and for having prevented the capture of Bourgneuf by holding the La Chaine causeway against the rebels. "'Gaechamp,' said Gauvin, "'I'm placing you in command here.' Make your fire as heavy as you can. Riddle the barricade with cannonballs. Keep all those men busy. I understand, said Gaechamp. Mass all our men with their guns loaded and be ready to attack. He added a few words in Gaechamp's ear. Very well, said Gaechamp. Are all our drummers alive and unwounded? Yes. We have nine of them. Keep two and give me seven. The seven drummers silently came forward and lined up in front of Gauvin. Then Gauvin called out, Red Bonnet Battalion, step forward. Twelve men, including a sergeant, stepped out from the main body of soldiers. I want the whole battalion, said Gauvin. Here it is, replied the sergeant. There are only twelve of you. There are twelve of us left. 
Very well, said Govan. This sergeant was the gruff but kind trooper Radub, who had adopted in the name of the battalion the three children they had encountered in the woods of La Sodre. It will be remembered that only a half-battalion had been exterminated at Erevan Pai, and Radub had been fortunate enough not to be part of it. A fodder wagon was nearby. Govan pointed it out to the sergeant. Sergeant, have your men make straw ropes and wrap them around their guns so that they won't make any noise if they knock together. A minute went by. The order was carried out in silence and in darkness. It's done, said the sergeant. Soldiers, take off your shoes, said Govan. We don't have any, said the sergeant. Counting the seven drummers, there were nineteen men. Govan was the twentieth. Follow me in single file, he ordered. Drummers behind me, then the battalion. Sergeant, you'll be in command of the battalion. He put himself at the head of the column, and while the cannonade continued on both sides, those twenty men slipped through the narrow, deserted streets like shadows. They walked in this way for some time, winding past the fronts of the houses. The whole town seemed dead. The inhabitants were huddled in their cellars. Every door was barred, every shutter was closed. There was no light anywhere. In this silence the main street made a furious uproar. The cannon duel continued. The Republican battery and the Royalist barricade angrily spat their grape-shot at each other. After twenty minutes of tortuous walking, Gauvin, who moved through the darkness with certainty, reached the end of a lane which led into the main street, but on the other side of the market. On that side there was no entrenchment that is the eternal imprudence of barricades. The market was open, and one could enter beneath the pillared roof, where a few baggage wagons were waiting, ready to leave. Gauvin and his nineteen men were facing the five thousand Vendeans, but from behind. Gauvin spoke softly to the sergeant. The men untwisted the straw from their guns. The twelve grenadiers posted themselves in battle array behind the corner of the street, and the seven drummers waited with their drumsticks raised. The artillery fire was intermittent. Suddenly, in an interval between detonations, Gauvin raised his sword and cried out in a voice that was like a bugle in the silence, Two hundred men to the right! Two hundred men to the left! All the rest in the center! The twelve grenadiers fired their muskets, and the seven drummers beat their drums. And Gauvin uttered the redoubtable cry of the blues, With bayonets! charge! The effect was prodigious. That whole mass of peasants felt itself taken from the rear, and thought there was another army at its back. At the same time, hearing the drums, the men commanded by Gayshamp at the top of the main street rushed toward the barricade, while their own drummers sounded the charge. The peasants saw themselves between two fires. Panic magnifies everything. In panic, a pistol-shot seems to be as loud as a cannon. Every outcry is a ghost, and the barking of a dog sounds like the roar of a lion. Let us also add that the peasant takes fright as quickly as a thatched roof catches fire, and as easily as a burning thatched roof becomes a conflagration, fear among peasants becomes a rout. There was an indescribable flight. In a few instants the market was empty. The terrified peasants scattered. There was nothing the officers could do to stop them. Imanus uselessly killed two or three of those who were running away. 
Nothing could be heard except the cry, Every man for himself! The whole army poured through the streets of the town like water through the holes of a sieve, and dispersed into the countryside with the speed of a cloud swept along by a hurricane. Some fled toward Chateauneuf, others toward Plurguet, others toward Entrain. The Marquis de Lantenac saw this rout. He spiked the cannons himself, and then withdrew, slowly and calmly, after everyone else had gone. "'No, these peasants won't hold firm,' he said to himself. "'We need the English.'" The victory was complete. Gauvin turned to the men of the Red Bonnet Battalion, and said to them, "'There are only twelve of you, but you're worth a thousand. In those days a few words from a leader was the cross of honor. Gaychamp, sent beyond the town by Gauvin, pursued the fleeing peasants and captured many of them. Torches were lighted and the town was searched. All those who could not escape surrendered. The main street was illuminated with fire-pots. It was strewn with dead and wounded men. The end of a combat must always be pulled up by the roots. A few desperate groups were still resisting here and there. They were surrounded, and they laid down their arms. In the frantic confusion of the rout, Gauvin had noticed a bold man, a kind of agile and robust fawn, who had protected others as they fled, but had not fled himself. This peasant had made such energetic use of his musket, shooting with the barrel and bludgeoning with the stock, that he had broken it. He now had a pistol in one hand and a saber in the other. No one dared to approach him. Suddenly Gauvin saw him stagger and lean against a pillar of the main street. He had just been wounded, but he still held his saber and his pistol. Gauvin put his sword under his arm and went up to him. "'Surrender,' he said. The man stared at him. He was bleeding under his clothes from the wound he had received, and his blood had formed a pool at his feet. "'You're my prisoner,' said Gauvin. The man remained silent. "'What's your name?' The man said, "'My name is Dans à l'Ombre.' "'You're a brave man,' said Gauvin, and he held out his hand to him. The man replied, "'Long live the king!' Gathering all the strength he had left, he raised both arms at once, fired his pistol at Gauvin's heart, and swung his saber toward his head. He did this with the swiftness of a tiger, but someone else was quicker still. It was a man on horseback who had arrived unnoticed a few moments before. When this man saw the Vendean raise his saber and his pistol, he threw himself between him and Gauvin. If it had not been for this man, Gauvin would have been killed. The horse was struck by the pistol bullet, the man was struck by the saber, and they both fell. This all happened in the time it would have taken to utter a cry. The Vendean also collapsed. The saber had struck the man full in the face. He was lying on the pavement, unconscious. The horse was dead. Gauvin walked up to him. "'Who is this man?' he asked. He looked at him. The blood from his wound had flowed over his face, forming a red mask. It was impossible to distinguish his features, but it could be seen that he had gray hair. "'This man saved my life,' said Gauvin. "'Does anyone here know him?' "'Sir,' said a soldier, he came into the town a little while ago. I saw him arrive. He was coming from the Pontorson Road. The chief surgeon had hurried to the scene with his kit. The wounded man was still unconscious. The surgeon examined him and said, An ordinary gash. 
It can be sewed up. He'll be back on his feet in a week. It's a fine saber wound. The wounded man was wearing a cloak, a tricolored sash, a pair of pistols, and a saber. He was placed on a stretcher and undressed. A bucket of fresh water was brought, and the surgeon washed the wound. The man's face began to appear. Gauvin looked at him with profound attention. "'Does he have any papers on him?' he asked. The surgeon felt the man's side pocket, drew out a wallet, and handed it to Gauvin. Meanwhile the man, revived by the cold water, was beginning to regain consciousness. His eyelids were moving slightly. Gauvin looked through the wallet. He found a sheet of paper folded twice. He unfolded it and read, Committee of Public Safety. Citizen Simordan, he cried out, Simordan! This cry made the wounded man open his eyes. Gauvin was overcome with emotion. Simordan, it's you! This is the second time you've saved my life! Simordan looked at Gauvin. A flash of ineffable joy illuminated his bloody face. Gauvin fell to his knees before him and cried, My master! Your father, said Simordan.